Hi there, welcome along to another episode of the High Performance Podcast. Nice to have you coming back for more. Just a quick reminder, we have a book coming out. You can pre-order the book right now. Just go to the description for this podcast, click on the link, and you can pre-order the book that comes out in December. Basically, it's Damien and I looking back over the interviews that we've done on this podcast and plenty more content as well as we reveal how all of us can become high performance. But as well as that, there's also a chance for you to join our new High Performance Circle. We only announced this a week or so ago, and already thousands of people are signing up for this. This is basically an exclusive club that you can be a member of where you will get access to content that you don't get anywhere else. Short, 15-minute inspiring conversations, keynote speeches, high-performance podcast episodes that you will hear there before you hear them here It's a really, really exciting place. It's called the High Performance Circle. And all you need to do to sign up is go to highperformancepodcast.com, put your email address in, sign up and receive your invite. And the best news of all, membership is free. So if you want to be involved with the High Performance Circle and get even more content from us, totally free of charge, just go to thehighperformancepodcast.com, sign up and get your invite. Here's what you can expect on today's show. I'd been here about two days and everyone I spoke to, every head of department, kept quoting this best in class line. So I've been about two days and my head was going early. Yeah, I got to say my head was gone. I said, hang on a minute. I said to one of them who's not here now, I said, explain this to me then. You got a gym where you couldn't swing a cat in it. You've got a training pitch with a hill in it. You've got no floodlights, so you can't train in the winter when it's four o'clock and it's dark. I said, the restaurant is a disgrace. What a horrendous environment. No one want to eat in there. You've got 49 porter cabins. Is that best in class? Because if that is, we've got a problem, mate, because we are at different scales of what best looks like. That's what the place was. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Okay, let's get to it then. You're going to love this episode. I know you are. Um, Thanks so much for coming back for more. Thanks for talking about the pod, for sharing the pod, for following us on YouTube and Instagram. Damien and myself are really enjoying this most 
Damien and myself are really loving this fourth series of the podcast. And if you're new, of course, you can go right back to the beginning and start listening from there. But let's do it. Okay, it's let's get to it then. You're going to love this episode. I know you are. Um, thanks so much for coming back for more. Thanks for talking about the pod, for sharing the pod, for following us on YouTube and Instagram. Damien and myself, Damien and myself are really loving this fourth series of the podcast. And if you're new, of course, you can go right back to the beginning and start listening from there. But let's do it. It's time for this high performance podcast. Before we get going, just a quick warning that Stuart uses some rather colourful language. So if that offends you or you're around young ears, feel free not to listen. Hi there, I'm Jay Comfrey and you're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs and leaders on the planet to unlock the very secrets to their success. Now, everyone needs a professor in their life and mine is also a psychologist and author. He's a man who, as you know, because you listen to this podcast, he just seems to ask the right questions at the right time. And this is a rather special day for us, Damien, because um, we're interviewing our matchmaker, the man who introduced the two of us together. Basically, we're interviewing the man who's responsible for this podcast right oh yeah 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 i'm very much looking forward to it today jake i think that if i was going to summarize today's guest i think that um his superpower is that he's a patient man in a impatient world and i think that unpicks lots of things courage farsightedness and authenticity I love that. Look forward to getting into that a bit further. And if you're wondering how Damien and I met, well, this man also thinks outside the box. And um, he brought Damien in to speak to the staff at the football club where he works, to speak to the players. He kindly invited me along to have a listen. And from there on, the High Performance Podcast was born. So let's get to it then and welcome a man who is one of the most sought-after directors of football in Europe. Getting to the Premier League once is impressive. This man has masterminded three promotions with two clubs in just the last few years. However, what we want to do is go deep into how he's done it, from being a groundsman at Wrexham to leading an entire club by the time he was in his mid-30s. Where did that self-belief come from? Who and what served as inspiration? And how have the failures, although they're few, how have they fueled the flight as well? It's an absolute pleasure to welcome to the High Performance Podcast, Stuart Weber. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Big fans of your work. Um, didn't realise actually was the, the reason for this, but appreciate that. So, uh, yeah, thanks. But uh, no, honoured to be here. I love listening to it. Um, you know, you've had probably some of the people who inspire me the most on it. And, uh, you know, obviously we've exchanged messages a lot about it. And um, But it's been brilliant. But it's also been great to listen to people I've never heard of, you know, people like Holly Tucker and and um, Joe Malone and people that isn't in the world that I, I live in. But listening to them and, and learning from them has been fascinating. So I think the work you're doing is incredible. So from myself, thank you for that. And I'm sure I speak on behalf of a lot of people. Oh, so kind of you. Thank you. Um, let's get to it then. What is high performance? I think it's tough to answer. And I think everyone will have their own opinion on it. Um, for me, it, it comes down to working at a consistent level. But I also think it's about, you know, I want to be a high performance father. I want to be a high performance husband. I believe we have high performance groundsmen here. Uh, high-performance physios, um, high-performance chefs like that. I don't think it's necessarily just people at top of organisations. I think it's about doing the, the best you can, but on a consistent level. Of course, making mistakes along the way and accepting that as part of the journey. And I think that's, I'm sure we'll go into that today, but I think you've got to accept early that you can't be a high-performing husband all the time. You will make mistakes. You can't be a high-performing parent all the time, but it's that striving to be the best but striving to be it every day. For me, it's a consistency is, is the, the key bit. And we've had people on this podcast that say only certain people can be high performance. Yet you've named numerous roles at this football club and you want people in those roles who are high performers. 
do you think that anyone can either learn to be high performance or, or, or has the potential to be high performance? Yeah, 100%. I think it's... Um... I don't think it's about being special or, or being gifted or anything like that. I think, um, you know, and I'd like to think I'm living proof of someone who's, you know, who's doing all right for themselves, who's come from, uh, you know, a real humble beginning. I come from a village called Cumsum Log, of which there's probably about 10 people in the world who've heard of it. And, um, you know, I was brought up with, um, you know, a single mum, et cetera, et cetera, all these things, no academic qualification. And I, you know, I'm doing right, I think. And I think it's, it's about, it's a mindset, it's an attitude, it's your behaviours. It's not about, oh yeah, he's lucky he went to this school or he's lucky he got this opportunity or he must be special, he was born with a gift or whatever. I, I think that's rubbish. I think it's about your mindset. It's your decisions you make. Becoming a high-performance father, that's, anyone can do that because it's a bit like, well, your behaviours can still be high-performance. The values you instill in your child are still high-performance. That's not, you're not gifted that. that. That's a choice, in my opinion. A bit like choosing to be fat or thin, choosing to smoke or not, choosing to exercise. Or not. That's a choice. It's not a gift. I think, unfortunately, in life, too many people choose not to, to do things and, and want to become a bit bitter with life about it. And, and that makes me sad, to be honest. It disappoints me. You know, when you see people not maximising, you know, someone said to me once, you're only here once, it's not a rehearsal. So I believe it's a case of, well, maximise that. You know, when you're taking your last breath, you want to look back and go, you know what, did all right, made a, had a good go at that, rather than looking back and going, ah, if only. How bad must that be? Your last breath, if only. Horrendous. Which is an incredibly powerful mindset, Stuart. So if we go back to you growing up in Mid Wales and, like you say, the circumstances of being um, of being raised by a single parent and maybe struggling in school a little bit, where did that ability to recognise the power of choice, when did that penny drop for you? So I think I was really lucky that um, my mum's incredibly strong, unbelievably strong, like toughest person I know. Um I always think she's going to knock me out sometimes. And, um, <laughs> but she was always, what I respect now being a parent about her. You don't respect it necessarily when you're a kid. But she was always like, no, you can do what you want. You can achieve what you want. But you've got to go and make it happen. It isn't going to come to you. And she used to like work two jobs. And I used to look and think, my God, she works her nuts off. I worked that right really early. I was probably eight or nine. I used to think to myself, she's never off on a weekend or whatever. If I want to go to football, I've got to catch a bus to, to go to there or I've got to do this and do that. But because she's working, she's not sat on her ass watching Emmerdale repeat or whatever. I sort of always saw that as work ethic. So I always had in my head from a young age, I've got to work hard. It's only now or when I become an adult that I realised what she was doing weren't normal. But at the time, that was just, that's normal. That's what you do. I really struggled at school. I hated it, to be honest, but I was dyslexic. But then what I did is um, I started reading a lot. So I taught myself to read and my, my mum sort of, forced it because she worked out he's only into football and formula one that's all he's interested in so i'll give him some football to read i always had a dream as a kid of winning the premier league always had a dream as a kid but not as a player because i worked out early that i weren't good enough as a player but i always had a dream of winning the premier league and you know i used to go and watch um football or whatever and i used to think imagine how much that special that feeling must be at the end of a game and i always visioned it away from home where there's only three or 4,000 of your fans there. And I thought, how special must that moment be where the rest of the ground's getting empty and, and you're just over with your fans and that, that sort of moment. And, um, and I was always like, I've got to try and make that happen somehow. And when you, you don't know how to do it, do you? Because I'm talking about being a kid here, so I don't know how to do it. But what I did work out was I've got to leave the town I was from because everyone around me, with the exception of my mum, were, you know what, you'll probably get a job in 
the garden centre here or you'll get a job here or a job there. And I'm like, no, I'm leaving here at 16. First opportunity I can get out of this town, I'm getting out of this town because, you know, I'm quite, I can be quite stubborn. I know what I want and I love proving people wrong. I had the bollocks to do things. You know, I left at 16. I went up to a college in, in North Wales to do a um, course in horticulture. But just for context, you for anyone listening, so what did that mean at 16? So like, how far away from your home was going up to so North Wales? So three hours, three hours. Right. Um, and I used, to, I used to catch a bus up on a Sunday and a bus back on a, on a Friday night. And you used to have to stop in all these weird and wonderful places in, in Wales on the way back down. So I went and did this, it's a BTEC or something in horticulture. It was the best thing I ever did because it got me out of there. That's when opportunities came up and I saw um, a chance to go into Wrexham uh, Football Club, obviously in the, in the conference now, but they're in League One at the time. And they, uh, they said I could join their ground staff once, one day a week as like work experience. And that was my, my route in because what I was doing then was got there first thing in the morning, do a bit of work, and then I watched the first team train. And it was people like Darren Ferguson, who's now Peterborough manager. It was like Chris Armstrong was a, was a striker back then, people like Lee Trundle, et cetera, et cetera. For me, it was like watching the best players in the world ever train. I'm just stood on the side of the pitch with a fork going, huh, this is unbelievable. Watching Dennis Smith, who'd managed a thousand games, so like a real experienced manager, watching him work, watching tactics. It was always a Friday, so you get into tactical sessions. I'm like, this is unbelievable. And at the same time, I started doing my coaching badges. because so I thought, I've got to do something which gives me some sort of qualification here. So I started doing my coaching badges. And I said to, at the time, was a guy called Steve Weaver, who I work with now as the academy manager. And I said, listen, can I coach at night? The academy, I don't want paying for it. I just need the experience. Yeah, no problem, whatever. If you're any good, we'll, we'll give you a chance. So they give me a go and then they give me the under-12s team to take on myself the next year, which was like winning the World Cup final. Oh my God, my own team, this is unbelievable. I'm, you know, I'm going to take my own team, the under-12s. And you know, I thought I was Mourinho and all the rest of it, you know what I mean? And, and you try things and it was an outstanding experience and just sort of worked up from there, you know, while doing my badges. And while still working as a groundsman as so well. So working as a groundsman, yeah. And then uh, what happened was the manager unfortunately got sacked, or fortunately for me, and then Steve Weaver left from being head of youth to be assistant manager. And Steve Cooper, who's now Swansea manager, was his assistant, became head of youth. And then he gave me the assistant. So that at that point, I became full-time in that area, which was which was special, a special So was there really. ever any sort of difficulty in managing perception then for you, Stu? Because like, you're a groundsman and people like to put you in a box. Yeah. And yet there you are with all this passion and enthusiasm for coaching and you're taking the under-12s. How did you manage that? That was tough. There was days I wanted to give up and, and not do the coaching because I thought, you know, I was getting a piss taken out of me constantly, really. I used to feel uh, at times really insecure about it. I used to think, why are they going to listen to me? Because they see me as just a groundsman. How, how am I going to get my message across? And it was tough. And, you know, you learn your coping mechanisms and, and you know, you learn to be honest with yourself. And, you know, I learned to have my moments where, you know, I'll, I'll go home and, and be upset and be down, but not let people see it and deal with it. But then also liven yourself up and go, right, come on. But one thing I know is I can outwork anyone. I truly believe that. And that's why I would always go back to. But can I jump in there, Stu? Because there's something else that I know about you that always intrigues me, that that, that kind of authenticity of do the right thing and work hard. And, and even at that young age that you don't drink alcohol and yet that might have been an easy way into a group to be part of a gang like that that you go out drinking together and you sort of break down barriers there I'm intrigued at the courage to to stay true to those principles of not drinking not trying to impress people that are difficult to impress would you explain a little bit about that courage to stay true to yourself and where that came from how you develop it how you nurture it 
So the not drinking one, it always amazes me how many people are surprised at that. The reason why I didn't drink, so, because uh, the people often, you know, then people, oh God, has something happened in your life? I was like, no, 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 no <laughs> nothing like that. But people that, you know, that's their then go to. And it's like, no, what happened was, God on the truth, why I don't drink, and I've never touched it, is um, my sister's three years older than me. And I'll never forget it. She's gone on a night out, she's about 18, I would have been about 15. And um, she's come back and she's woken me up for some reason because she's been sick all over her room. And I've gone and seen the mess. And I looked at it and I looked at her and I said to myself, that day, I am never, ever putting myself in that position. So that was the day I decided not to. But yeah, it, it was, I'm very happy by myself. So I've never needed to go on nights out be around people. I, you know, I, I like being by myself. I like going for a walk. But if I had one day left to live, forget about family for a second, in that day would be a four-hour walk by myself. So I've never craved the nights out or the rest of it. I can never get my head around a nightclub. I've been to two. You can't hear anything. It's just <laughs> loud. But I've never cared what people think about stuff like that. I've always been, I don't know why, whether it's a bit of single-mindedness or what, but I've never, ever bowed to peer pressure. I just haven't. And if you don't like me for that, that's fine. That, that's like, I'm not changing for that to fit in. It's like, I hate wearing ties. You know, I remember I said to the owners here when they were talking to me about the job, I said, if you want me to wear a tie, I ain't coming. And they were like, you know, that's like you know, one of the key negotiation points. I'm like, I'm not doing it. Didn't wear it at the wedding. And to take the piss on our wedding invites, I put strictly no ties. Because it does my head in when it says strictly wear a tie. Really, that makes you a good person to have a tie. Do you know what I mean? It's just things like that. I've always been a bit... Would you genuinely have not taken this job though if they'd have said you had to wear a tie? Yeah, 100%. That's madness. Because it's like an amazing opportunity, an amazing job. Why is it not uh, sometimes okay to say, well, that's my non-negotiable bar, I'm going to let it go for the greater good? Just because, for me, it wasn't so much the wearing of the tie point. It was the point of, if you see this position as a guy who needs to look like he's wearing a tie and Mr. Business-like, you've got the position wrong. It's about how you are as a person, not how you look and how you dress and do you say the right... You know, I had to say to him, listen, I will swear. I will swear at board meetings. I remember saying to him, I will call your baby ugly. If you don't want that, do not employ me because I can't sit there and find, I'm not intelligent enough to find sexy words to dress up something, which really takes going, that is shit. I can't dress that up. And I said, if that's not for you, I'm definitely not your guy. And luckily Delia and Michael, um, the owners here, like, you know, they laugh and they love it, you know, and, you know, I've got Delia swearing, I was brilliant. She, you know, her, her favourite line is, he's a tosser. And I love it because it's like, you know, it's just like, yeah, it's like, come on, you know, let's... Um, so it wasn't actually about not wearing a tie at all. It was about what that represented. Yes. Trying to put you, once exactly. again, it's a bit like someone want... trying to put you in a box and say, that's what you need to be. Yeah, to if it's job. like you see this as some corporate sort of role or whatever, I'm not your guy because I will challenge that and I will change that because I, I don't believe... It is about that. I don't believe uh, leadership positions are about that. I think it's about how you act and, and your behaviours and how you are with people. I can't be fake. I can't do, you know, I'll be honest when, when I mess up. I'm the first to say, I don't need anyone to tell me. I'm the first to go, yeah, I fucked that up. Sorry about that. But I'll learn from it and I'll get better. I don't need to play a political game of, oh, the reason it went wrong is because of this, 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 and this, and this. It's like, I'll go, well, it just went wrong. And I'm your man. If you want someone to blame, blame me. It's all right. Rather than being, yeah, too corporate and, and too many big words. So how does that work then when it comes to running a football club? Because I remember talking to Sean Dush, do you remember? And he was like, right, no headphones when we travel, only wear this. Well, you know, you have to bring plays here and you have to say, right, these are the rules when we travel. You're going to wear this outfit. When we train, you're going to turn up precisely at this moment. These are the rules for operating under my regime at Norwich City. Yet 
you've just told us that it's not about that, it's about who you truly are. So you're trying to create something here where you want people to stick to rules and regulations and standards, but you've also at the same time got to kind of see beyond that and see the, the person behind it. So how does that how does that yeah, work so, out? So we're not really strict on rules. Right. So if someone's two minutes late, two minutes late, the lads sort that out. That's for the players to sort out. Um, if it's a strict breach of discipline, then yeah, it's different. If someone's been sent off for spitting at someone or something, then yeah, that's a, that's a major breach of discipline, goes against what our values. You have to deal with that in an appropriate sort of manner. But if someone wants to wear headphones on a bus, wear headphones on a bus. If that helps you perform, that's fine. As long as you're not disrespectful with anything that you're doing or wearing non-club gear because you know they understand the commercial rules of listen we're sponsored by x you need to wear that so you know there's certain things but they understand that you know if it's going to help us win by all wearing matching trainers or something fine but it probably isn't so it's about letting people be individual but what can't slip is standards when you do your work so when you're out on the training pitch it's it's how you work when you're staff members how you work you can't be negative they're the non-negotiables. You've got to give, especially nowadays, well, you've got to give people freedom to be individual because they are, and you have to accept that. There's things that I see our boys doing and staff, which I can't get made around. You know, there's something now called a TikTok or something, which is like yep. sending videos out and, and I can't get made around it. I look at it and go, why would you do that? But you have to understand that's their world. So I choose not to do it. And I look at it and go, wow, I think you look a bit of a weirdo or whatever. But in their world, they probably am a widow. And, and it's about accepting them for them. And if that makes them happy, if that helps them relax or whatever, good luck to them. As long as it's not disrespectful, it's different. If you're doing one, I don't know, slagging off the queen or something, then yeah, okay, that, we have to intervene then. But, you know, most of these guys now are so well educated on what to do with these social media and stuff. But, but yeah, it's about how they act when they're on the pitch, how they act when they're in public, how they interact with supporters. That's different. So if you get headphones in and there's a kid asking for an autograph, take them off. Because that little kid, that's his best day of his life ever, by the way, because he's meeting you. So treat him with the respect that, that he deserves. But then this is other times that it makes you feel better with your headphones on, on the way to a game, listening to whatever, because it, it could be a motivational talk. It's not necessarily, it could be a message from a family member. We don't know. So treat him with respect. If that helps him perform, let him do it. This understanding, this deep knowledge in terms of having respect for people and not necessarily coming in and applying strict rules, Let's go back to when you left Wrexham and went to Liverpool because that's an organisation that has, they often refer to it as the Liverpool way. They've got a really clear set of standards. Where and I'm interested in stuff that you picked up on your journey that now shapes the way that you lead Norwich. Yeah, so I mean, when you go into Liverpool, it, it's more than a club. It stands for so much and as a, as a responsibility when you when you work for them, it's like unwritten though, you know, no one ever sat down and gone, you now work for Liverpool, this is what you do. It's almost like you just feel it and you see it happening and you, and you watch people act in a certain way, which then you go, all right, that's obviously, this is what you do, this is how you act here. So again, there was no rules, it was more just seeing No, it's seeing it, it's people leading right. by example. So we were really lucky at the time at the academy, because I worked at the academy, Kenny Dalgleish was club ambassador and he had an office at the academy. So he'd come in two, three days a week. And if you ever wanted someone who's lived the Liverpool way. This this is his guy as obviously a player, manager, manager during you know the you know the horrendous uh, Hillsborough disaster. So you know this is a guy who lived it and breathed it every day and cared so much for the club. So you're watching how we act. But even before that, when I was at Wrexham, we had Joey Jones who uh, won two European Cups for Liverpool, and he would talk about Liverpool, and you think, wow, you know, it's like some sort of magical place or whatever. Um, but then also at Liverpool, we had uh, two people there called uh, Rodolfo Burrell, who's now first team coach for Pep at Man City, and um, Pep Segura, who's technical director, and they, and they both come from Barcelona. So it was like, 
when I, when I arrived there, it's when you realise you know nothing about football, is when you're with these guys, you actually realise, I know nothing. Um, it's like going slipping right back down the ladder and going, we've got to try and walk back up this now. But just watching how they were and the standards that they worked to, what they expect of a player, the detail, the level of detail that they go into, the level of process that goes into it um, was unbelievable. But, but their behaviours, I think, were just embedded in that club over probably 50 years of which naturally everyone just sort of seemed to pick it up. You know, it was never rammed down your throat of this is Liverpool, this is what we do, or here's a nice sexy PowerPoint, this is our behaviours, not at all. It was like, it's just how people acted, you know, and if you're lucky enough to go up to Melwood, you'd see Steven Gerrard or Jamie Carragher and how they act as senior players and how they interact with the staff, whether it's in the canteen, the groundsman or the manager, and go, oh, okay, that's, that's how a proper bloke behaves, is it? That's what it meant being Liverpool. If we were bringing a young player in and you'd get him to see Steven Gerrard, he would talk about the Liverpool way. But you'd talk about it in his way, not, again, some PowerPoint or some corporate, oh, you know, these are our seven values or whatever like that. It's like, nah, this is bigger than any one person. This is, this is Liverpool Football Club. You're representing millions of people. You're representing the cop. You're representing this. You've got to look after the legacy of, of Shankly and, and all these guys. You know, and it was like, it was just part of what we spoke about. And, and I think also as well, they use visuals well there when I was there, whether it was around Anfield or Melwood or, or, or up at Kirby at the, at the academy. They'd remind you. When you'd walk past and you'd see an image of Dalglish lifting a European Cup, there's a reminder right there of, oh, okay, that's, that's, what we're, that's what we're trying to be. That's what they expect here. So every day it was there for you as sort of constant reminders uh, rather than like I say being sort of rammed down your throat and it's a it's a common old question isn't it when you arrive in a new job hey nice to meet you Stuart so you know you're here at the moment what's your what's the plan what's your grand ambition would you ever say to win the Premier League would you ever share your secret for dream Norwich. with people no when you were at Liverpool would you tell them the dream of that dream you had as a young kid I'm doing this job because my aim in the end here is to win the Premier League would you share that with people or would you keep that to yourself at that point yeah, no, I'd share it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not ashamed of it. It's, um, you know, the other big dream I've got is um, I want to climb Mount Everest. I want to raise a million pounds whilst doing that. But no, no, because I believe in in sharing um, in sharing what what you think and your beliefs. Because if you can share it with people and talk to people, some people might have some good ideas towards it, you know. And someone might go, oh, "Have you thought about doing this? This might help or whatever." Whereas if you keep everything tight inside, don't get me wrong. I, I pick and choose who I share things with as well. You know, I wouldn't. I've got no instead of no interest in starting an Instagram account and telling the world and open up Bob Bob the Builder says you know, you prick you never go you'll be full down it or whatever it's like no interest but people who are trust and and uh, you know I believe can maybe share some insight yeah absolutely tell them you know because they might have some answers yeah. to help that and what was the reaction when you go into Liverpool at a relatively young age and say well my plan is to win the Premier League in the end well, did people embrace that I think they see it's normal when you work at that level it's like the people are oh yeah good yeah well, we don't want you if you don't. It's the place that you're used to winning and, and being the best. So they want people around who want to be the best as well, not you know going in and saying, God, it's nice to win the Carabao Cup. It's a bit like, what? You're in the wrong place, mate. So then you go to QPR, you go to Wolves, you move around a bit, you end up at Huddersfield, and then you end up as a director of football, as the man running a football club. And then Huddersfield are having a great season. Looks like they're going to make it to the promised land of the Premier League, which you're largely responsible for at that time. And you then decide to leave and come to Norwich. Where does that decision come from and how important is it in your line of work to be able to make those brave decisions at a time when people from the outside will look at it and think, not now, why would you do that now? Yeah, I think people didn't get it at the end, at, at, at the time, because all they could see was, yeah, we're going to the Premier League. I'm like, well, yeah, but I'm 34 years old. 
I didn't see it as a once in a lifetime moment. I, you know, I, I truly believe that, well, it's not the hardest thing in the world to get promoted. So we can do it, I can do it again somewhere else. Um, Comes back to the patience so, that Damien mentioned at the beginning. Yeah, or yeah. But so for me, it was about conversation I'd been having at that club at Huddersfield with good people, by the way. So I don't want to, I'm not going to slag anyone off here, but I didn't truly believe that they truly believed that they could stay in there and grow. And that weren't for me. I won't go in there to survive in the Premier League and, and you know, win a few favours and a few people slap me on the back and whatever. It's like, no, no, are we going to grow this into a proper Premier League club? Because we can. I'm not saying let's go and win the Champions League at Huddersfield because it's not going to happen, but we can stay there. And are we going to in, invest in infrastructure? Are we going to invest in more people? And I weren't convinced. And it was little things like in the canteen, the restaurant, the food was crap. And I kept going, we've got to get better chefs. We've got to get better food. We've got to get better food. And it was met with, well, we feed them. What's, what's the problem? And that was killing me because it's like, that's not, that's not the level I want to be at. That's like, nah. So kind of jump in there, Stuart, and, and just how much of that reminded you of your hometown growing a up? A lot of it. A lot of it. Now, I went to Huddersfield and I'll always be grateful because they give me a chance to, to be in a prominent role and try things out. And, and I always saw it as a safe club where we could bring in a foreign coach. We could change the way we're playing. We could bring in some foreign players. And if it went worse, it finished near the bottom of the championship for years. I thought, well, it can't get any worse. You know, like in my naive way, I was like, well, you know, the only way is up. And if we improve by a place, well, it's an improvement. But I thought we could achieve something special. But at that point, definitely, it was like, I hate unambition. I hate the oh no, we shouldn't do that because, you know, what's the point? Or it only gives us a 1% gain or whatever, or we're already feeding them or they're lucky with what they've got or whatever. So yeah, I, I'd never thought of it, but you're probably right. It probably did bring me back to conversations as a little boy where people would almost put it down and not be ambitious enough and happy with, happy with being shit. I used to say to him, you're happy with being bang average. And that annoys me. Running a club, this club should be here long after we're dead. And our job is to make it better along the way for the next generations, for the next people. We're not playing a short-term game here. If we were, when Norwich got to the Premier League, we would just spend a load of dough to try and stay there for a year, get a few slaps on the back, everyone go, oh, you're brilliant, wow, it's amazing you stay up. And then it goes wrong and then you've got nothing to show for it and then you off, you get sacked and off you go. Whereas it's a bit like, nah, I'm not having that. And so at Huddersfield, when the opportunity came up here, and it helped because my wife had previously worked here. So she was like, you need to speak to these people as in the owners, because I think you'll just like it. And when I spoke to them, I, they convinced me, we'll let you do what you want. We haven't got money to support it, but you can do what you want. And that excited me greatly because I love building stuff. I love building buildings. Um, I love building uh, culture, but I love it doing with in, without interference from people who don't know. Because what happens in football a lot, probably in lots of sports, but in football a lot, people interfere who haven't got a clue. <laughs> and when someone gets a bit of success as an owner or a chairman, they start to think they do know. And they start to go, oh, I think we should do this. Whereas here, Delia and Michael really convinced me, or I believed, should I say, that these guys will let us do whatever we want. Um, and that was exciting. And I've, before this interview, I spoke to a few of the players that were here when you arrived and just said, look, what, what would you like to know from Stuart? And Two of the three came back and said, when he first arrived, he just said to us all, ignore the noise, which helped us massively. What did that mean? And why was it so important? When you believe in something, when you believe in a way, when you've worked years to develop that way, 
you have to you have to stick with it and you've got to see it through. Yes, be open-minded to adapt it, absolutely. Um, but I think we now live in a world, you know, I'm sure you'll get it with this podcast where where you'll have feedback after every episode, mm-hmm. good, bad, and different. And I think you've got two choices. You can choose to look at that from someone who hasn't got a clue and go, oh God, someone who hasn't got a clue is now in my head muddling me a little bit. So actually maybe we should change doing what we've done. Even though it's successful, we should change it because, you know, again, Bob, Bob the Builder who hasn't got a clue has slagged it off or something like that. Or you can choose to ignore that. And I'm a big believer in this. If you let the noise get in the way, that's when you start getting muddled. If you believe in what you're doing, that's the key. You know, I believe you've got to protect your staff, you know, players, staff from that noise. You know, there was an incident um, in the promotion season, actually. I'm a big believer in you play football a certain way. It's an entertainment industry and I believe it should be played a certain way. I'm not saying I'm right or wrong, but it's my deep believings. And if an owner ever said, come in and said, listen, you've got to play 4 4 and absolutely smash it, I'd walk out the door and go, I can't, I can't be part of that. But we had a game, I think it's Swansea at home in the promotion season. And we're top of the league, by the way. And um, they had Dan James playing up front for him, who plays for Man United now. And he's obviously rapid. And who's watching me, he's like unbelievably quick. And he's closed Tim Cruel down a couple of times. And, and um, we want to play out for the back. That's what, as a club, we want to do. That's what the coach works on every day. One of the re- big reasons we signed Tim. He's played a couple out. He's got a bit close to the lad, almost nicking it. And anyway, in the second half, ball's gone back to him and he's just smashed one. So I'm sat in the stand, my head's going, oh, what the fuck are you doing that for? Like, that's doing my head in. But there was ironic cheers from the the you know two thousand fans behind, and uh, I was doing some press within a couple of days. I don't know why I was doing some press, and it was really absolutely annoyed me. That it's a bit like have some respect for the players who are top of the league, who are trying to play a certain way. We've got three of the back four under twenty years old, so they need help here. We've got a fella in goal who hasn't played for two years because of injuries. Give them a bit of support, not ironic cheers. You know, and I came out and I said something like, um, to be honest, at that moment I wanted to go and punch two thousand people in the face because. <laughs> Tim needed protection at that point in terms of, listen, you don't need me to protect him, but what he needed was reassurance of, no, fuck them. Ignore them. They don't know. Half of them probably had two beers and don't even know where the ball is. So ignore them. You've got to just ignore that and do, this is how we do it. This is how we play. This is what we do. This is what we're building our success on. Not because they've got nervy because there's some rapid centre forward who keeps closing you down. It's like, no, ignore that. But no, I, th- I think it's hugely important because I think if you if you get caught up with it, it can eat you alive. And I'll be honest, I had it here my first year. It was difficult here. I'd left Huddersfield. They'd been promoted. They were staying in the Prem. We finished 14th. But I was getting hammered a bit, you know, by some of the people here, some of the fans and whatever. And, um, you know, when I started looking at it, I made a fatal error. I started, I started looking at it and... Uh, Why? What changed there? I just had a moment of weakness. I had a moment of probably feeling lonely, uh, definitely feeling lonely, actually. Everything had been so good, you know, at Huddersfield, uh, the hoo-ha of coming here. It was a bit like, this isn't, this isn't going great first year, actually. Everyone's questioning what you do, and, and you even see it from people you work with, people, that, directors, you know, a bit quieter with you, a bit whatever, and you think, fucking hell, I'm, this is a lonely place. And then, you know, you, have, you go into a place where you do start looking and you realise what people are saying about you and, and wrongly you start to look at it more. And I remember having a conversation here with Neil Adams, who'd been manager here, played here, and is a, t- is a top, top bloke. And I said to him, fuck, I'm struggling a bit, mate. He's gone, do yourself a favour. Fucking listen to what you say to other people. Don't look at it. Right. And from that day, I've never looked at it. From that day, I've never gone back and looked at it. And all this time later, I bet you can still remember what some of the comments were because... They stay with you, don't they? They do. They do. And, and, and it hurts because when you're doing your best and you're trying so hard and you know what you've come into and it's like, this, is, this isn't easy to turn around. People in football think, just flick a switch and win. 
Well, yep. in the championship, it's 24 teams. Only three of them can have a successful season. Three of them are going to have a horrendous season and the others are going to be somewhere in between. Same with the Premier League. Only one team can win it. That's it's an unfortunate fact. It's like probably six want to win it. It's like only one win. So guess what? You're going to be disappointed. And it's, if it was easy as flicking a switch, everyone would do it, right? And it's tough. But, you know, but then times also make you stronger. And that's why when we got relegated, for example, I didn't need to look. Because I knew exactly what people would be saying. Like, I don't need to look now when things are going right. Because I know exactly what the, the same people will be saying. I actually like looking at it, you know. Do you? I like, the, I just find the energy, I just find it an energy source. The criticism, an energy source, yeah. I disagree. I, fi I find it a waste of time. I, what I find as, as an energy source is, and it's, it sounds terrible, this, but when we were getting relegated, so you've got to take this as, a, as I mean it, right? Um, we had this sort of lockdown period. So I, uh, I spent loads of time up on the coast in Norfolk, which is a beautiful place, walking alone, 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 walking, walking, trying to work it out, trying to work it out. Spoke to a lot of people who've been through relegation, right, what do we need to do, what do we need to do? Because we were six points off safety at that point, we tend to go, but I knew we were getting relegated. We weren't good enough. So I weren't one of these dreamy ones, if, if only we could win the next game back, we'll be all right. We weren't good enough. Yeah, I wouldn't say that outwardly, yeah, obviously, of course not, but I knew. And then as we went through it, I was going through it in my head. I got from a point of, I sort of grieved a bit, got my head around it and then was like, I then got semi-excited about the thought of getting relegated because I thought, you know what? This is going to be great. I'm going to learn so much about myself. I'm going to learn so much about others. And Damon, you use a saying about boxing, which I think is the same for relegation. Relegation or, or you say about boxing doesn't develop your character. It unveils it. And I got a little bit excited of, fuck me, I'm going to find out about some people here. And some of them people really surprised me in a positive way. People that I probably thought, you know what, I'm not sure they're going to really with this, turn like that and we're like proper behind you. But then other people weren't. And, you know, and I found it fascinating watching people's behaviours through that as a, as a learning point. Because I got over it. I imagine a bit like a death, really. It's a bit like, you know, someone who you know is dying. It's like, right, I've dealt that they're dying. So actually I'm going to enjoy the, the last bit of time with them. I was a bit like that through the relegation period. Now, did I enjoy it? Not one bit, of course not, in terms of the games and stuff. But what I did enjoy was all the things I was learning and, and you know, seeing about different peoples. And, and it's at that time, it becomes lonely. We got promoted a year before. I probably got 400 messages within 20 minutes of the final whistle. We got relegated at 10. I remember speaking to, uh, to a manager who'd been through it, who's, you know, who's now become a world-class manager. And he said, the best thing the club did for me is they didn't sack me. They let me go through relegation. And he goes, I learned more in that time than I did in any other part of my career. And, um, and I'd agree with that. And um, that's become the fuel for me. So that's become the fuel to me. So what we did, we, got, we then got the staff together here uh, after relegation. And I did some media out and about where I said about, I took full responsibility because I wanted to shut the noise out. I, wanted to, I didn't want it to be uh, picked apart for the next six, seven weeks. So we got- Was that when you said publicly, you said I, I sent- Daniel, the manager, I sent him to war without a gun or something. Yeah. That was the phrase you used, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, so my, my idea was, was I want to take full responsibility for this. Because everyone wants to scapegoat. When you get relegated, when you lose, when you, I don't know, your best mates leaves his missus or whatever. It's like, everyone wants to scapegoat. Everyone wants a reason. Even if we're in one, they want a reason. You know, we've got to blame someone. So I'm like, right, I'll take the blame here. Bang. Public. And I did it privately as well. I did it in, the, in a board meeting as well. Because I was like, like, cut the bullshit. I'd already got to the reasons why and I knew what we had to do to, to make sure we were stronger, stronger next season. So I did that. And then uh, I got a meeting here with all the staff. And at this point then, because I'd already got over it, dealt with it, found out who was on the journey with us. I then got into the mode of, we're fucking pe proving people wrong. We're not having that feeling again. 
by the way, because that hurt and was embarrassing. And I remember using some, I think it's Sir Alex Ferguson used it about not letting any sharks on your island. And I got the staff in and I said, all them fucking sharks, it used to be our mates and I was circling around us, they do not come in here. And we've used it to create a surge mentality at the training ground around people of not for that. We now know who's with us and we found out and, and we use the old FIFO effect that you uh, talk about, Damien, and certain people, bang, you're gone. You ain't part of it. Get out. You're not going to be around here anymore. You you can't help us. And and it was really ruthless. But then it was about backing up and, and you know, because words are easy. And it's a bit like relegation. It does my head in. When you see a player or anyone crying on the pitch, oh, we'll be back and whatever. Fuck off. Get on with it. Do your job and fix it, you know, and make sure you're never sat on that pitch crying again. It was about creating that. But taking that noise away of everyone thinking, oh, is the man's going to lose his job? Is Stuart losing his job? Whatever. It's like, now I'm going to take all of that because to be honest, if everyone then slags me off for a month, I won't see it. So I don't yeah. know. So it, it's irrelevant. You know, so if they're all going after I've said my press, if they're all tweeting or writing whatever emails into the paper or whatever going, he's a knobhead, he should get sacked or whatever, it don't hurt me because I can't, I can't see it. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I think one of your superpowers, and I know that might embarrass you in terms of using that, but the ability to get the decision makers to have the patience that you have. So I love the way you've described that siege mentality of getting everyone that you're responsible for like gathered together. But I think it's almost a, an invisible skill to get the people that, are, that could press the trigger to buy in and still and and do that. So I'm interested if you'd explain to us how you get them to also ignore the noise. Yeah, and that's tough to be honest, um, because they are fans. Really, that's yeah. why they do it, um, and that's great. Uh, so it hurts them a lot when when we lose. They also have people around them who are fans, so they'll be chipping away. For me, I've always looked at it as it's about education. It's about transparency. So whether it was at Huddersfield, whether it's here at Norwich, um, it's about complete honesty with the owners. So at the end of each year, I do a report, uh, which only um, three people see, the two owners, uh, and my wife, because she has to check the, the spelling. In that, I give everything. And I talk about the mistakes. I talk about um, what went wrong, why something went right. Because say, saying I always nick from you is you say success leads clues. So it's a bit like, Right, well, we've got to keep doing that. If that's you know, if that was successful, look at the clues as to as to why. I never lie to them. I will be bold with them though. So when I say about, I remember James Madison was a player here. I'd been here two days, and I said to him, I said, "We've got one player here who will end up playing for England." 
He hadn't even seen him play at that point. I'm like, he'll play for England. We've got to find a way of now getting him through. And, and he's gone on and, and done all right. But then ultimately, you need them to have the strength to to believe you. And I think it's it's them if they believe you or not, really. And I, I don't know. You'd have to ask them probably why yep. um, more than me, because I don't know. But that's how I've always done it. Um, and I never fear about getting sacked. I never have. Because I think when you've come from nothing, having nothing isn't scary. I said to him after the first year here, I said, you're going to read this. You might want to sack me. You might want to sack me because it is brutal. Like it is literally brutally honest about some of the mistakes that I have made during this year. But a part of that is also some of the learnings that have come and this is how we're going to do it different. I think for whatever reason, they've appreciated that and 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 backed it, which, you know, and, and I know I'm lucky for that because, you know, lots of places you could work at would have just sack you. I think what is really interesting about this conversation is that I, I look at a lot of people in football that are shackled by their involvement in the game. So they're fearful of the fans all the time. They're worried about the fact that the multi-millionaire or billionaire owners are going to get rid of them at the drop of a hat because that's how football works. They can be the king on a Saturday one week and then they can be the villain the following week because they haven't won the game. Whereas you seem to operate here with absolute freedom in your own mind because you don't look at social media. Um, you are okay if the owner turns around and says that this journey has come to an end. You believe absolutely in what you're doing and you're only sticking to that. Do you feel that sort of sense of freedom that this you're on your own journey and nothing can derail it? Yeah, absolutely. Because at the end of the day, it's a job. The reasons I do it for, uh, I want to make the place better for people. I want staff to enjoy working here. I want to watch good football being played. I want to watch young players. I want to see us grow somewhere because this football club's special for so many people because it's the only one in the community. You know, it's unique. So I know it's bigger than just one person or or, or, or anything like that. So I think it does give you a freedom because when, when your why is that, it's very different. So I'm not doing this job to try and get a better job. Now, I turned down a massive job last year, which would have tripled my salary, would have given me unbelievable kudos and would have given me tools to, to work at the highest level possible. But I'd given the owners my word that I'd stay here until the end of my contract. So it was a really easy decision to say no, because it's like, well, yeah, I'm doing a job here. I've committed to that and I'm going to do it. I think the only pressure I have on myself is how can we help more people who need help? Because I think if anything the last year has shown is there's a hell of a lot of people out there who need help and there's people on our doorstep who need help and that scares the living daylights out of me is when you suddenly get exposed to seeing a bit of child poverty on your doorstep, that is like the slap in the face moment of actually what we do is around football is really unimportant. You know, there's, there's people here who can't actually feed their kids. We've got to do something about that and, and that's what is for me in terms of my personal next journey about starting a foundation, climbing Everest because it's been a dream and, and a goal and, and a determination. They're the things which I feel pressure on of, right, how am I going to make that happen? More than worrying about, you know, if we lose next week, am I going to get sacked or not? Whatever. You know, Christ, I have the most basic life ever. You know, if you come around to my house for a barbecue, you'll see me in a Huddersfield Town training top and a pair of probably old Liverpool shorts and I look like a scruffy so-and-so. But that's like, oh yeah, I don't it's just is what it is, you know, and, and my wife takes a piss all the time of uh, out of that, but I can't change that because I'm inc incredibly comfortable with that. Working with that freedom helps, definitely. With the freedom that you operate under, I'm really interested to know when you arrived at Norwich, what you found and what you wanted it to be and how you got from the first to the second. It was fascinating. But when I approached, every uh, document I'd see 
had a saying called best in class. And I'd been here about two days and everyone I spoke to, every head of department, kept quoting this best in class line. So I've been about two days and my head was going early. Yeah, I got to say my head was gone within <laughs> two days. I'm like, I said, hang on a minute. I said, this is, I said to one of them, who's not here now, I said, don't, you're pissing me off now. Best in class. What does that mean? So naively he's gone, oh, right, yeah, no, what it means is, thinking I didn't know, he's gone, um, it's about being the best in everything we do. All right, what do, what do you mean? Well, you know, it's the best we do in, in everything, everything we do, everything we do throughout the club. Right, that's what it means, is it? Yeah, yeah, I've gone. Fucking explain this to me then. You got a gym where you couldn't swing a cat in it. You got a training pitch with a hill in it. You got no floodlights, so you can't train in the winter when it's four o'clock and it's dark. I said, the restaurant is a disgrace. What a horrendous environment. No one want to eat in there. You got 49 porter cabins. Is that best in class? Because if that is, we've got a problem, mate, because we are at different scales of what best looks like. And that's what the place was. It was full of gimmicks. It was full of sayings. Which I'm wrong, I think there's a place so for did that. So they think they were best in class? Yeah. Or were they just hiding behind the words? I think there's a bit of both. Right. I think there was a bit of, they'd probably been conditioned to hide behind the words. But also I think some people just didn't know what good looked like. Yeah. And, and that's not necessarily their fault because some people maybe haven't been exposed to good. I was very lucky on my journey being at a Liverpool, for example, where you're suddenly with world-class people and go, and people who are miles better than you. And you're like, you know, you have them drive zone where you go, fuck, I'm miles off here. And culturally, there's nothing really. It was like, you know, you'd see players walking off the training pitch and, you know, there was players here who'd been here a long time who'd achieved unbelievable things at the club over sort of eight, nine, ten years. And, and I was talking to them and they were, they were like, you know what, we've had three promotions, we've done this, we've done that. The training ground hasn't changed. Staff still get away with this. Standards still aren't good enough. You know, and it was like you could feel it, a resentment from within the players, within some of the staff of that. And there was very much uh, everyone worrying about keeping their job mentality because, you know, when you live here, as you know, Jake, we are detached a bit. So if you do lose your job here, it's not like you can just go and work for another football club down the road. There isn't one. You've probably got to move your whole family. So, of course, that fear of losing your job here, it actually changes your life a lot more than maybe if you leave it up in the northwest, of which you can go and work for another club. But there's also, there's just no sort of direction there was no um, real understanding of what they wanted to be but the club had still had success so on the pitch the club had still achieved promotions and, and a huge respect for that I'm sure whoever replaces me will say things weren't good enough in certain areas absolutely because it's not but what we had to do is we had to change the culture we had a, we had a list of um, we had a list of values which was just a list on the wall and I remember going what's the point of that it's just a list on the walls you know one of them was growth you know, and I would call them out. They were like, well, what, does that, what does that actually mean then? What does respect mean? It needed a bit of shaking up for sure. It needed a bit of discipline brought in, but basic discipline. I'm on about probably more manners than discipline. You know, I, was, I remember, you know, because I spent my first uh, couple of weeks watching, observing, which I know is definitely a, a skill that I've got. I watched how people interacted in the restaurant. I watched how people interact with the kit men, how people interact with the groundsmen, and they didn't talk. I remember uh, someone coming down from the stadium and they were like treated like they had some disease or something which was going to spread. And it was a bit like, someone going to talk to this person or what? And, and I hate that. Like manners just have to be there. You have to have good manners. You, you have to say please and thank you. You've got to show respect to people. But I was very lucky because one of the reasons to come was I said, can I change whatever I want? And it was yes. Because in fairness to Dean and Michael, they'd become a bit detached from the club. I remember them saying to me, oh, we're not allowed at the training ground. And I've gone, you own it. It's a bit like someone saying to me, I can't go in my own garden. It's like, well, I think I can. Um, like, oh, no, they don't want to say. You need to be there because they're two of the most humble people 
with some of the best values I've ever met. I've learned so much off them about being human beings. I'm like, I need you there because they need to see if you're at the top of the the organization and a superstar in your own right in terms of, you know, selling your books and, and all this, that and the other, if they can see you being a good person, it then makes it safe for everyone else to feel like they can be a good person. And so I needed to bring people, you call them cultural architects, needed to bring a couple of them in the building. We needed to add some into the into the playing squad and breed it now. And one thing is I'm very proud of that we've got here. Whatever else we're successful or, or not successful at is I know we've got, we're full of good people and honest people who work hard, who want to get on. Yeah, we have fights and we have arguments and we disagree and we get pissed off and we get upset, of course, because so we should. Conflict is important, but at the heart of it, it's people who actually are good people and look each other in the eye and say please. They say thank you, you know, whether it's a 19-year-old player, whether it's a 36-year-old international player, whether it's a staff member, they respect the fact that we're fortunate that someone's cooked our dinner. So the least I can do is put my plate back. You know, it's little things like, you know, when we go away from home, we make sure we leave the dressing room as we find it. And it's about respect. Being good people doesn't cost anything. Anyone can do that in the world, whether you're homeless or whether you're a billionaire, you can be a good human being and um, and just show respect for our environment. If you see a piece of litter, pick it up. You always talk about cultures, what's happening when your back's turned. And that's crucial. You know, we, we've got some at the minute with one of our one of our people who works here is having a real tough life uh, at home at the minute. It's, it's incredibly heartbreaking to be honest but i'm watching how people are rallying behind him and i fucking love it he's one of ours and we're looking after him so what would the 18 year old groundsman from wrexham make of norwich city today how much of it would he recognize as lessons that he learned then that he's still seeing echo through the years definitely the behaviors piece so joey jones he worked at wrexham won two European cups at liverpool right so he used to have a saying which he used to always say to the kids it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. And that has always stuck in my head. That was the best apprenticeship ever. And I would no way ever have had any level of success in my personal life or work life if it hadn't have been for, the, for that period at Wrexham. Because they taught me, they taught me how to be a proper bloke, cool people out, can have it with people, but also how to be incredibly respectful. And even though that you think you're important, because you can easily get carried away on this journey, right? We've all um, we've all been that, because people put you on a pedestal, but how them values are vitally important. And, and I'd like to think if you spoke to anyone who I worked with at Huddersfield or anyone who I work with here after I've gone, because at the minute, they probably feel like they have to say good things. I'd like to think whatever they say, whether they thought I was good, bad or indifferent, they'd go, you know what, he's a decent bloke. Two other final points from me. There were people listening to this and they'll be listening to this thinking, oh, I wish I had that self-confidence. I wish I had that self-belief. He's, the geezer's rock solid, no problem. Do you have doubts? Every day. I wake up every morning at the minute and I think of two things. Every single day for the last, since we got relegated, I think of two things when I wake up. I think of Watford at home when we give a goal away after two minutes. And I think of Mikel Antonio scoring four goals against us the day we got relegated for West Ham. And it scares the living daylights out of me, the thought of that ever happening again. It scares me. It's what drives me every day. It, it's why at the minute I'm finding it very, very difficult to enjoy what we're about to do because I slip into trying to enjoy it and that just comes back in my head. No, but I have lots of doubts. You know, I had it in my first year here. I remember my first year here, we finished 14th, Uddersfield stayed up and uh, and I spoke about this before publicly. I remember at the end of that year, I had a week at home by myself. I remember sitting there going, am I shit? Maybe I don't know what I'm doing. 
Maybe Huddersfield was all a fluke. Maybe I had nothing to do with that success. Maybe what I, everything I believe in is completely wrong. And honestly, I, I went to a dark place, like a horrendously dark place of some of the thoughts I was thinking. And it's like, boy, what's going on here? And, uh, and I spoke to three people about it. Uh, one was my wife, one was a club chaplain here, and one was one of my best mates of like, what do you think about this? And luckily all three of them were like, fucking liven up, will you? You just want to be the best at what you do. You want to be successful. You want to, when people are relying on you as well, you know, I knew people, staff were looking at, oh God, and what are you going to do? They don't have to say anything. You can feel them looking at you. You know, I don't know if you've ever had that, but like when you know that everyone's looking at me here as to see how I'm going to react, what I'm going to do next. Am I going to come out fighting? Am I going to cry and get off or whatever? Incredibly tough, but it's about, I think it's about being honest about that though. It's about, first of all, yourself. There's no more person you can be honest with than yourself. If you can't be honest with yourself, then you, then you probably should give up. But you've got to give your time to be honest with yourself. I make sure now I spend a lot of time to have them honest reflections, but then also knowing who you can speak to about them. I show my vulnerability all the time. I will start meetings and go, guys, I've got to be honest, I've really messed this one up. Uh, that was that was my fault. Um, boom, boom, boom. And then it creates where other people can be vulnerable. And I think it's, I think when you get, into that place of known vulnerability is all right. And it took me a long long time to work that out, to be honest with you. I think that becomes a superpower. Because I think what I found is you have so much more respect from people when you can actually go, you don't know, or I'm scared, you know, I need help, than when you actually try and be the, the macho guy and I've got all the answers guy and all the rest of it. Now, there's some days you have to turn that on. After relegation, staff, the media, players didn't need to see a bloke moping around going, oh, I feel vulnerable. They needed to see leadership. But you've also, once you've got that ability to show vulnerability, I do think that's a superpower because I think people want to help you. And with that vulnerability, what are you not very good at? That'd be an hour episode by itself. Okay, what are you worst at? I struggle to hide disappointment if I feel I've been let down. I really struggle with, um, can we have a catch up tomorrow? I know that that means there's something wrong. Mm. I can't sleep if, I, if I'm thinking what that is. It's like, let's deal with that right now. I, I, I know I'm poor at some management things, such as emails and that. I'm, I'm, my meetings are horrendously stru uh, badly structured because uh, I don't like structure. I believe in, let's get around and chat and talk and have a cup of tea as opposed to, right, point one of the agenda is I struggle with that. So I'm the world's worst at a board meeting because you will find me, I get asked sometimes, what do you think of that, Stuart? And I'm like... Sorry, I've not listened for 20 minutes. I've zoned out here. I'm thinking about how I'm going to climb Everest, not, you know, what I think of this policy or whatever. Or And I struggle with detail around things I'm not interested in. So I'm obsessed with detail, but struggle with it. So if it's detail around our late, latest HR policy, I can't read it. And I have to say to people, just tell me if I should sign that off or not. And I need to get better at that because it's, you know, it is part of uh, life as well. And certain people's style, they need me to be better at that. So I'll keep trying. Brilliant honesty. Thanks, Joe. So we'll go into the quick fire round then. So the first one is what are the three non-negotiable behaviours that you and everyone around you has to buy into? Hard work. If you don't work hard, I can't look at you, let alone work with you uh, or live with you. Positivity. You know, it, it, I remember reading the saying once, you know, a problem is an opportunity in disguise. I truly believe that. And it does my head in when people moaning and woe is me. It, oh, God give me anything but that. So you have to be positive and uh, you have to be ambitious. You have to believe that we can be better than maybe what everyone else thinks we can be. Or if not, you know, take our job here. Our natural place in football would probably be about 30th in the league out of all the 92 clubs. 
So it's like, for us to stay, get and stay in the Premier League, well, we've got to think bigger than that. We've got to be ambitious and we've got to try things and we've got to take risks and, and stuff like that. Um, I hate people who, oh, I'll take a safety first approach, fuck that. You don't achieve anything by taking safety first, do you? What advice would you give to a teenage Stuart just starting out on his journey? Three things, actually, if I may. One is lose weight, get fitter, um, and read more. You know, I, it took me a long time to realise how looking after myself was important. You know, I was, I was four stone heavier than this uh, only four or five years ago. I didn't realise the mental help that exercise gives you. So, you know, I wish, or if I was advising someone now, I'd be like, look after yourself, get fitter, get fitter, lose weight. You know, uh, one of my biggest challenges is, is food. You know, if I feel down, I eat a lot. And, you know, so managing that is, is tough. But, but then also reading in terms of, you know, clever reading, you know, reading books which make you better, reading from people who, who make you better. You know, I've done an incredible amount of reading the last five, six years. And I think if you can have that mindset earlier, I think so much to learn from people, you know. And, and to be honest now, it's probably maybe even less reading. It's more listening to podcasts because, you know, that's a brilliant thing with the world now is you could be in your car and, and listen to a podcast from anywhere in the world. I listened to one the other day, Brené Brown, not dissing yours or anything, but Brené Brown and Simon Sinek, you know, Can outstanding. you not promote other podcasts? Uh, outstanding. Um, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. Um, both brilliant. But outstanding, two people, two yeah. minds together talking yeah. was fascinating. You know, it was like an hour and a quarter in the car. I'm like, yeah, wow. You know, it gets you really sort of thinking and uh, yeah, there's always them opportunities um, to do that. How did you react to your greatest failure? Uh, privately, uh, very badly. Publicly, you wouldn't have known. But yeah, yeah, badly. Yeah. In what way? I think just that feeling of incredible anger, uh, incredible embarrassment, uh, like the whole world is laughing at you and how that made you feel uh, or how it made me feel, sorry, wasn't good. I should have, I should have been better at understanding that was part of learning part of growing part of the journey um but you know i did drift into a place of um not being a nice person um for a while and, and not nice to be around and um yeah lots of regrets come from that normally at this point the question is are you happy but i i think we know the answer to that i i want to flip this one around a bit because you operate here um with a, a management trio of yourself uh, your wife and ben who runs the non-footballing side of things you live with a person who you work with as well. So are you an easy person to work and live with? Uh, you'd have to ask them. Um, I'm definitely an easy person to live with um, because I'm, um, I know I'm helpful around the house because I can't really sit still. So if the dishwasher needs filling or emptying, I'll do that. So yeah, in terms of the work with you, you'd have to ask them. I know it can be difficult at times because I struggle with taking no for an answer if it's about making us better, you know. So I know I can be, sorry, we are building that swimming pool, but I'll raise the money for it. Don't worry about that. So I don't need your help. I, I'm not someone else's responsibility. I'll take full responsibility for that, by the way. So I do it for, for definitely the right reasons, but, um, but I'm sure it, it challenges people at times. I'm sure people wish I'd probably, probably piss off, you know, but... Um, it's always from the right reasons. I never do anything for my own self. It's a mindset of, no, we're going to be bigger than that. And why can't this club be a big club? Yeah, we can't be Man United because they're based on incredible history going back to, to the Busby Babes and, and what have you. But it's a mentality of, we can be a top 10 Premier League club and this is how we're going to do it. And, but we're going to grow into that. Not just, 
oh, hopefully he'll become one. It'd be nice, wouldn't it, if we finish 10th for the Premier League? It's like, no, the mentality of, no, this is what we are. And, um, you know, the type of players we sign, the type of people we have around the place, actions. And I think if you spoke to anyone here, the one thing they'd say about me, he gets things done. And I know I do that. So if we have an idea and I believe in it, it's like, no, let's find a way. And finally, then, Stu, what is your one golden rule to live a high-performance life? Give it a go. Every day. Just wake up in the morning and make today better than yesterday. It is all right, by the way, I think, to be happy working in a local news agents and going home and going, I've got a beautiful family, I've got a beautiful dog, and, you know, well, that, that's, you know, that's high performance for me. Because you know what? I make sure I'm the best news agent because when people come in, I know all their names and I ask about their grandkids and I ask about this and that. And it's a great, we've all been to these shops, right? Where you end up going, fucking love going in there because they speak to you. How's your mum? You know, or whatever like that. And they make you feel special. It's about, so it's it's about that. And it's about, yeah, having a go. Like anything is possible. And I don't mean that in a cheesy way, you know, because it's not possible for me to become the quickest runner in hundred meters now. I know that's not possible, but having a good life is. Anyone can choose to have a better life. And, and grow and, and, and uh, achieve more stuff. So have a go at it. Yeah, it takes us back to responsibility, which is probably the number one topic on, on this podcast over the last 12 months. Thanks so much for that conversation. What I love sitting here is, and there will be people who are listening to this, so they don't know where we're sitting, but we're sitting in one of the newest buildings here at the football club. And when you talk about getting things done, you came here in 2017, so yeah. four years ago. And in that time, there's been an absolute transformation on the football field, off the football field, with the staff, with the people, infrastructure, mindset, results. You can look at every single facet of this football club and know that from the day you walked through the door in 2017 to now, um, it's evolved, it's improved, it's changed. And as a Norwich fan, thanks very much. But more than that, as the host of this podcast, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your thoughts with us. No, pleasure. Thanks. Really appreciate you having me. Thank you. Damien. Jake. You know that old phrase, dream without hard work is just a dream. Hard work without a dream is just hard work. I love the fact that he works clearly so hard, but he does it with that dream that he formulated as a little kid winning the Premier League. And when you sit and listen to Stuart like that, you kind of, you're left with no doubt that he will do that in the end. Absolutely. I think that phrase that he said about just make it happen... You know, it's an easy thing to say, but to actually then implement it and put the building blocks and take small steps as he did, whether it was moving home to go and work in Wrexham, taking that job as coaching youth team uh, uh, for no pay. All those small steps are all moving him closer towards that dream. And I think one of the biggest things that I want people to get from listening to these podcasts is this belief that you can do better, you can make it happen. Like immediately people's brains switch to, well, what about people who don't have the circumstances or um, excuses and things like that? But, you know, we're not saying every single person can be a director of football at a Premier League club, but every is open to every person to better their life in some way. All of us, you, me, everyone listening to this, it just is, isn't it? Definitely. And I think that was what was powerful, what Stuart was saying, that you can be a high-performance partner you can be a high performance parent you know even the example of running a news agent you can make it high performance in the way that you go all into it and I think that's the powerful message make it happen and none of the stuff Stuart described requires a starting point of wealth or talent or or contacts it's about using what you have mm. and doing the best you can with that 
And I think um, if we were having a conversation a few years ago, I don't think you would have a person who runs a football club talking about the importance of vulnerability. But when he says, I'm the first one to say I messed up, I'm the first one to accept my mistakes, you can see how valuable that is in a culture and in an institution like this. Absolutely. What he's describing there is a phrase that some people listening to this will be familiar with. It's a phrase called psychological safety. The idea that the best organisations are where people can be vulnerable. They can admit mistakes. They can confess to fallibility. They can hold their hands up when things don't go right. Because when we do that, that then gives us a place to learn from rather than to fear the consequences of it. And all the best organisations take this seriously, just as Stuart's describing I was reminded a bit of Johnny Wilkinson, you know, when he said that he got that moment where he realised they were getting relegated, which is a big admission because, you know, you could never say that publicly at the time, but he realised they were getting relegated and then he's like, right, I've dealt with that. I'm actually going to enjoy the, this experience. It's a hard experience, but I'm going to explore the feeling of being relegated so I never have it again, exactly as Johnny would say. Be comfortable with that discomfort. Don't don't run away from it. Don't mitigate against it. Don't don't try and explain it away and point the finger. Get comfortable with that discomfort. Work out how you can avoid it again. And then go back to that phrase, make it happen, put mm. plans in place to avoid it. And I know he loves building buildings. He said that in the interview and we're sitting in one of them now. But I think that the true example of what he's done at this football club is when you walk through it. You can't put your finger on it. It's not a tangible thing, but it's the feeling that you get at this training round, it is a positive, encouraging place to be, isn't it? Yep, you know, and again, details matter. We spoke to Toto Wolf about his first experience of Mercedes and the coffee cups and the old newspapers lying around told him that people didn't care about detail, which is what it was built on. And it's the same here at Norwich from the security guard being polite and welcoming when we came in here to every member of staff acknowledging making eye contact. That's what culture really is built upon, those small details. You know what, Damien, before you and I started working together, I hadn't actually heard about this sort of soft skills type thing, but it's something that that you spoke about quite a lot. And actually, after the conversation we had with James Timpson on the podcast, loads of people have been getting in touch, just wanting a bit more information about soft skills and why they matter so much. So what would you say to those people? It's a brilliant question. I think... Like the name is almost a bit misleading. Like soft skills mean that people dismiss it as a, as an irrelevance or a nice to have. Where the evidence says that it's soft skills like kindness, empathy, understanding, being able to make a connection with people that leads to the hard edge of performance. So when I work with teams, for example, that this is a question that I ask them of. How much of their best performance would they attribute to the hard skills? Say if it's a rugby team of, uh, say, how fast they are or how strong they are, and how much of it is down to the soft skills, like their ability to communicate or cohesion or confidence. And I've yet to meet an elite team that wouldn't tell you that 70% of high performance is down to those soft skills. Now, it's often interesting to say, well, where do you spend most of your time in training? And the reality is average teams will spend relatively little on soft skills. The best teams are working precisely on those areas as much as the harder stuff because they know that that's where the magic lies in high performance. And that's what James Timpson shared with us. Kindness towards his own staff means that they're then capable of being kind to customers, which then means that they deliver a quality service and customers keep coming back in in their millions. And I think it's really good, not just for a business leader like James Timpson or for 
um, someone like Toto Wolf running a sports team to talk about soft skills. But I think men in general to focus on soft skills is important. We actually had this, this is an anonymous message, Damien, that came on Instagram. It says, hey, Jake, hi, Damien. Steve Salis and Toto Wolf and others have all mentioned soft skill qualities that make them stand out as great leaders, coaches, managers. That's what makes the difference between the good and the great. As a football coach, I believe that too. Player focused, know the individual, then you know how to get the best out of them. And that's what I'm good at. After 20 years coaching, the evidence is there to help me finally stop the imposter syndrome as a female in football. But yet recently when applying for professional football jobs in England, that's my goal, I always get to the final two or three, which is great. I always ask for feedback to learn from and they highlight my player first attitude to coaching, complementing my soft skills, but suggest that would lend itself more to a mentor role within a club rather than a coach. So my question after that long message, they say, is are those skills seen differently if coming from a man? I'm just curious. Please tell me if you completely disagree. It may be that I need to adjust my approach to get a foot in the door. And that's something that I haven't really considered. It Like we talk about something that is a really good way to operate on this podcast. Maybe we also need to, to question whether people accept that approach differently from a, from a man or a woman. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating question. I think that, well, like I say, I think it comes back to the language that we use. We talk about soft skills and for many men, they may be feeling uncomfortable with that idea of, 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 of being able to connect or being vulnerable or showing their emotions because we've been conditioned to believe that's a sign of weakness rather than a sign of strength. I think I've said it to you before, Jake. I, I, like, I often use a barometer when I go into teams of, especially men's teams, when they use the excuse of banter. And I often say that banter is often the excuse of the dickhead. It's the person that's being nasty or unkind and then they excuse it as humour rather than actually what they're trying to do is belittle somebody or put them down. Humour's different, humour's inclusive. Banter has often got a crueler edge to it. And I think that men in general feel comfortable with banter because there's a safety net of not having to show your emotions and show how you really feel about somebody or something. I also wonder whether that message and it was anonymous we don't know who it's from but i would suggest if we do know who it's from then we'd recognize the name because they're talking about a 20 year coaching career as a female and they're getting down to the final two or three in professional football jobs so you know we're talking about a proper professional football coach here i wonder whether this comes down to football being sexist almost like you see a female come in and apply for a job and you, you see them being brilliant with the soft skills and really relating to players on, on a level, and you go, great. Well, of course they can do that because they're female. Whereas when a, a man comes in and does the same thing, you go, oh, it's great they can do that because we know they can also coach and be tough and be hard because they're a bloke. And I wonder whether this anonymous person is applying for jobs at places where they are still assuming because that person's a female, they can't do the hard skills they can only do the soft skills. Do you know what I mean by that? I, w yeah, I wonder yeah. whether they're yeah, just very much. basically what they're encountering is actually just sexism. Very possibly. Again, it's a really easy mindset that people can fall into that, that what we do is we dehumanise people. So therefore, when we dehumanise, we can delete, distort or dismiss their messages. Oh, they can't do that. That's not what I heard them say. And again, it's about education. It's about, as individuals, we all need to open our minds a little bit more. The example I've used 
when we've spoken before about this, Jake, is that it's like the guy that goes on holiday to a place where English isn't spoken as a foreign language then shouts at the bar staff in English. And when they don't understand, you just get louder um, and speak slower. You don't become more coherent. You just become more obnoxious in the process. And I think for a lot of people, that's the way that their mindset is similar to that, that they're not prepared to maybe think, well, maybe it's me. Maybe I need to open my mind and learn differently. It's easier just to keep using that phrase of howling at the moon, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. So whoever's sent that message, I think we need to understand it takes courage and it takes education and all you need is one person that's prepared to open their mind and give you a chance to then get the opportunity to start shifting mindsets. And I think it's a shame that this person felt the need to finish their message with, I may need to adjust my approach to get a foot in the door. I don't think that that is the case. I think that what needs to be adjusted is still is the opinion of women in football. I think this person needs to continue absolutely being themselves, being totally authentic, right? Definitely. But all change happens in three stages. People laugh at it at first, then they oppose it and tell you why it can't happen before eventually they accept it as self-evident. Why, so why would it be any different? And I think when it comes to, say, maybe gender equality in sport, we're in stage two, that bit where people are opposing it. But rather than be demoralised on that, see it as a sign of progress that people have stopped laughing and we're now on our way to getting people accepting it. And, you know, there are some great examples of it. You think of, like, Sean Massey, the lady that went into refereeing, who's successful now. You think of the likes of Karen Brady, the chief execs in football clubs, you know, and, and I know there's plenty of others. And I'm sure it won't be long before that applies to coaching as well. Yeah, it certainly should be the case. Um, and whoever you are... Um, I hope that's been helpful and we would absolutely love to know whether that job at a football club comes your way. Very best of luck with that. Damien, thank you so much, mate. Loved it, mate. As always, thank you. Thanks for having me along. Before we go, just a quick thanks. Thanks very much to everyone involved in this podcast for their hard work. Thanks to Hannah. Thanks to Will. Thanks to Finn Ryan from Rethink Audio. Of course, huge thanks to the professor. But I always say this, most of all, thanks to you at home. Thanks for sharing the pod. Thanks for talking about the pod. Thanks for following us on Instagram. Thanks for getting involved in our YouTube channel as well. You are the reason why this podcast has been successful. And we can't wait to bring you even more from the High Performance Podcast. See you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.